This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Joanna Schaffhausen discusses her debut novel, The Vanishing Season. Then PW Children's Reviews Editor John Sellers recaps the third annual Global Kids Connect Conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by NPD BookScan. Well, there's not a lot happening on the hardcover fiction list. We've only got two new books this week. Uh, one is by perennial bestseller Danielle Steele. Uh, this is Past Perfect. We don't have a review of this, but uh, according to the jacket copy, it's the tale of a wealthy modern family that mm. buys a mansion in California and uh, ends up sharing the house with the ghosts of the fabulously wealthy people who had lived there in the past. So wow. it sounds like a fun little ghost story. For uh, a little, little bit past Halloween, right? Getting, yeah. getting into winter time, but sure. it sounds like, like a like a cozy ghost story. It right. doesn't seem to be anything too scary, spooky happening here. And then the only other hardcover fiction newcomer is Tom Clancy: Power and Empire by Mark Cameron at number seven. And uh, we say that this is a superior entry in the franchise, started by the late Tom Clancy and continued by Cameron. We say he delivers plenty of action, along with the spycraft and weapons details that Tom Clancy fans have always loved. There's plenty going on. President Jack Ryan is dealing with confrontations with China. His son, Jack Jr., is working with an FBI agent to destroy a child sex slavery operation. And John Clark, Jack Jr.'s boss, is searching for a 13-year-old girl mm. who's been kidnapped. And uh, we say that Cameron successfully juggles the three separate plot lines – each one of which is engrossing on its own and seamlessly stitches them together by the novel's end. And we also note that uh, both Ryans receive an impressive amount of page time, which will make fans of the original Clancy characters and Clancy books very happy. Well, uh, so those two of the biggest selling authors out there. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, nice. no, no surprise to see them on right, the bestseller exactly, list. Exactly. Yeah. So over in nonfiction, we have... One book. Wow. Uh, okay. Just one. And it's at number 21. Uh, and this is uh, from America's Test Kitchen. And it seems now that whenever they have a book come out, um, it's on the bestseller list. No and surprise. This, no surprise here. Uh, they're solid books. And this one is called The Complete Cooking for Two Cookbook. The gift edition uh, looks like in time for the holidays. Mm. Uh, 650 recipes for everything you'll ever want to make. 650 recipes, uh, you're going to find something in there. So that's at number 21. And, you know, what's been interesting on the list is we're still finding further down Instant Pot cookbooks coming along with the Instant Pot craze. Uh, three or four of them out there. Yeah, so. lots of my friends are still talking about that too. So. Yeah. Apparently it's just the thing. So I think, as you say, when we're talking about gift books and gift trends, we're going to see those creeping up the list as well. Yep. Closer we get to the uh, to the holidays. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Joanna Schaffhausen tells us about putting her own twist on the serial killer novel. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Isabel Allende, and my book is In the Midst of Winter. 
and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Joanna Schaffhausen on the line. Her new book is The Vanishing Season. Hello, Joanna. So glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So this is your first novel, which centers around uh, Ellie Hathaway. Uh, Tell us about her. So Ellie was 14 years old, living in Chicago at the time with her mom and older brother uh, when she was kidnapped off the streets uh, one hot July night. It was the eve of her 14th birthday. Uh, and she was kidnapped by a, a vicious serial killer who had killed 16 girls already, and she would have been number 17 if a very green FBI agent named Reed Markham hadn't played a hunch and rescued her from the killer's closet. And so she was spared the fate of all of the girls who'd come before her, and she ended up uh, pursuing a career in law enforcement to try to help other people. And she's changed her name and is living in anonymity in small-town Massachusetts when uh, suddenly, one year, people start disappearing right around her birthday. And she gets these creepy cards in the mail with a clown on them that says, Happy Birthday, Ellery. And she, for obvious reasons, doesn't really talk about her birthday much. So she starts uh, worrying that somebody knows her secret, somebody very dangerous. But she can't convince anybody that the disappearances are related. And so it's July. And uh, someone's going to go missing again unless she can figure out a way to stop it. And so she calls up the one guy she knows will believe her, and that's Reed, who rescued her all those years ago. Tell us a little bit about the small town where Ellie is hiding and what it's like there. And why is it that the people there are so resistant to the idea uh, that these disappearances might be linked? So it's fictional uh, small-town Massachusetts. It's a, a made-up town called Woodbury that's modeled after some of the um, towns that are more rural in western Massachusetts. We have the, you know, big Boston at one end, and the, um, and at the other end, you can get some towns that are smaller and much more isolated when you drive off the main roads where they have, uh, you know, lots of trees and old New England churches and small towns of people who've lived there for generations, and everybody knows everybody. And so they know when these people disappear that some of them have, you know, good reason why they might be missing. So one of them is an alcoholic, uh, and they think maybe she drove her car into a lake and just disappeared that way. And another one they think uh, might have committed suicide. So they know these families and their stories intimately, and so when they turn up missing, people are, you know, sad, but they're not that surprised. And Ellery is an outsider. She has just moved there a few years ago, and here she is, you know, saying these fantastic things. And uh, the people in the town are really reluctant to believe her. I mean, nobody wants to believe that you have, you know, a killer living amongst you anyway. And so they're sort of happy to brush off her her worries. So um, let's talk about a little bit this Reed Markham. Um, Who is he? You had mentioned that he had saved her years earlier. What is he doing now? Well, now he's actually uh, on leave from the FBI. So Reed, um, he's a Southern gentleman. He's from Virginia, and he is half Latino, half Caucasian, and he was uh, adopted by this Southern family, a political family. His father is a state senator, 
and uh, when he was a baby because his mother was murdered and slaughtered uh, just a few feet from his crib at the time. And he was rescued and uh, and adopted into this great family, and he has felt sort of, I don't want to say indebted, but he wanted to live up to them and to be the good boy and to make them happy that they had had adopted him and so that's his self image as the as the good the do gooder the crusader the the boy who always colors in the lines um and so when he solves this big case and rescues Ellery he's he's really a nobody at the FBI at that time but his career skyrockets and he's seen as this giant hero and he writes a book that's a bestseller about the case and about Ellery and his big big rescue, and he becomes a hotshot profiler and and does a lot of good. Uh, but then he has uh, some stumblings where his marriage crumbles because he's busy crusading around the country, and uh, he blows a big case. He misses the killer that was in front of him, and and a boy dies as a result. And so he's on stress leave and kind of feeling at loose ends because he's had this self image of himself all the time about. You know, I'm the the hero, the do-gooder, um, the person who always does the right thing, and now his his moorings are are crumbling. He's not, you know, the good husband. He's not seeing his kid as much as he wants, and he's on, you know, mandatory stress leave from the FBI, where he's always distinguished himself. When out of his past uh, walks his biggest triumph, Ellery, asking for his help, and so he gets to go up to Massachusetts and find out, you know, is he really the big hero of her story that he's always told himself that he is? And the third person in this triangle, for lack of a better word, is Francis Michael Coben, who is believed to be responsible for these killings. Yeah, I mean, he's he's one suspect. So he's the, the killer um, that abducted Ellery all those years ago. And Reed caught him, and he's locked up. But now it seems like maybe there's somebody at least copycatting him. I mean, maybe he has a role, maybe he doesn't. Um, but whatever it is, it's it, it's somebody who um, definitely knows the Coben case and knows who Ellery is and knows who Reed is as as the hero, um, and is uh, intimately familiar with that history. And I'm getting the vibe that there might be some kind of romantic connection being set up between Reed and Ellery. Does that play out? Um, well, that would be spoilers for the next books, right? The, so the publisher has already picked up the next two in the series. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so there'll, there'll be two more to come at least, which is great. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, I would say Reed and Ellery have a, a very compelling connection. I mean, what makes them interesting is, you know, one of the, the worst things that ever happened to Ellery is one of the best things that ever happened to Reed. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to put them together and to have them reflect on that case. And I would say, you know, the book is kind of about identity, and both of them had their identities kind of forged in that meeting, you know, where she's the victim and he's the hero. And when they're reunited, they're both sort of forced to reevaluate those roles when they confront each other. And so they have this very powerful and unique bond. And especially for Ellery, who doesn't really trust anybody, um, Reed is a special force in her life because 
um, her her body kind of instinctively trusts him in a way that it doesn't other people. So she's kind of drawn to the idea of him, at least. And Reed is um, conflicted, and certainly um, other people in his life suspect that he might harbor romantic uh, inclinations toward Ellery, as his uh, ex-wife says at one point. I mean, sure, you could date her, but what are you going to tell people about how you met? (laughs) (laughs) So how do you come up with your with your characters for this? Again, it's your first novel. Um, what was the genesis of everything? Um, well, this one is is sort of unique. It actually started its life as an X-Files fanfic. <laughs> um, I love it. Yeah, yeah, many years ago. Uh, I mean, almost 20 at this point. And um, so, you know, Fox Mulder on the X-Files has a background as a profiler. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was playing a version of the Reed role in the original story. Um, and Ellery was playing a, a version of herself. But the, that story was quite different in a lot of ways. And I, you know, I had to take it down and, and rewrite it from the ground up to have it be something that I could market and that would potentially be the basis for my own series. Uh, but I thought Ellery was interesting. And I would say that the genesis for the whole story was around that time, 20 years ago, I was reading a book about Ted Bundy. And his story is infamous and very well known. You know, I, I asked this the other night at, at one of the book events, you know, how many people have heard of the Ted Bundy story? And, and literally every hand in the building went up. Um, and when I was reading this story, I was struck less by Ted Bundy himself and more by all the people who got caught up in his whole, uh, story where, uh, so Bob Keppel was the Seattle detective who got assigned to the case. He'd been on the job one week when you get the Ted Bundy case. Mm -hmm. Imagine that you're, you're a green homicide detective. You've only been doing this a week. And somebody hands you Ted Bundy. And they didn't really know it was Ted Bundy at that case. It was only at that point in the case. It was uh, it was just mi- missing girls. Uh, and he started investigating. And serial murder ended up dominating Keppel's career. Uh, he ended up hunting the Green River serial killer. He had a major hand in, in finally catching Ted Bundy. And then when Bundy was finally caught for good... Uh, Keppel interviewed him a bunch of times and got him to confess to murders that, you know, they didn't know he had committed, really. And so um, he went on to teach about serial killers and, and and do research on serial killers and write about them and trying to figure out, like, can we classify them? Is, are there ways we could be catching these people? It, took, it, it totally changed the direction of his life. Um, and that's pure serendipity, right? He was the detective on the case when it came in. And um, another woman, so Carol Durant, she would be uh, an Ellery-type person. She was the beginning of Ted Bundy's end. She's one of his living victims. And Carol was 18 years old and uh, shopping at a mall in Utah when Ted Bundy, posing as a police officer, uh, went up to her and said that her car had been broken into and that uh, she needed to come with him to the station to make a report. And so she got into his car, and immediately she thought it didn't look anything like a police officer's car, and so she was kind of nervous. And then he started driving her in uh, the opposite direction of the police station. 
And so she demanded to be let out of the car, and he pulled over and tried to put handcuffs on her. But in the struggle, he accidentally put the cuffs on one wrist instead of both of them, and uh, she escaped. And uh, so she was somebody who was able to say, yes, this is Ted, this is what he looks like, this is what his car looks like, and, you know, this was when the cops were able to start putting the pieces together. And uh, that was 40 years ago now, uh, and Carol today still gets 10 to 15 messages every day wow. about Ted Bundy. Wow. So from people trying to say, you know, I want to talk to you about him, from other people who are pretending to be victims like her, uh, some guy actually a couple of years ago was pretending to be her son Mm. just to try and attach himself to this infamous case. So it's completely taken over the public uh, imagination. You know, there's a new Bundy story on TV or the movies or a book or what every year. So I imagine what it would be like to be Carol Durant and still these days, you know, Bundy's been de- dead for decades and she's still living with him. She can't get rid of him because nobody else will let her. She's stuck with him. So in, in your novel, how tell us a little bit about the ancillary characters or, or about how this even has played out with Ellery. Uh, so, yeah, Ellery would be kind of the Carol type character where she's sort of trapped by her own past and she has uh, her colleagues at the police station including her boss and her boss has quite the eye for the ladies and she's been trying to convince him that uh, you know there's this nefarious source or of evil in, in town who's abducting people and he won't believe her so she finally gets his attention by having an affair with him thinking, you know, maybe he'll listen to her this time. Uh, so that's that's the sheriff. Um, and she has a friend named Brady who works at the animal shelter where uh, she adopted her basset hound, Speedbump, who is probably everybody's favorite character mm-hmm. in, in the book. Um, he's the humanizing effect. And uh, so Brady and... And Ellery have as much of a friendship as she's really capable of. They have this sort of shared love of animals. Um, and he takes care of Bump when she has to work long hours and this kind of thing. And Bump himself is, you know, always looking out for Ellery. And uh, he has a nose for trouble. And he also sort of senses that she could be in danger. Um and then Reed has his ex-wife, Sarah, who, well, they're separated at the at the beginning of the novel, and they have a, a six-year-old daughter, Tula, um, and that forms Reed's family. And Reed has a boss at the FBI, McGreevy, who doesn't want him involved in any of this. And I think those are kind of the major players. The sheriff is married, and so his wife, Julia, is not pleased with Ellery at all. And, yep, I think that that's most of the the major players in the novel, at least. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Joanna Schaffhausen, author of The Vanishing Season. Obviously, there are a lot of serial killer stories out there. What unique twist did you put on yours? I know you don't want to spoil anything, but uh, what, what did you feel going in made this story stand out, both for you as a writer and for readers of the genre? Um, well, I think this gets back a little bit to what I was talking about earlier, where there is a serial killer in this story. There's potentially two, actually, but it isn't really about the killer. It's about the people surrounding him. So, you know, there is this mystery going on where they're trying to figure out the uh, players, but it's less about, you know, the serial killer. Where did he come from? Why is he killing people? I mean, Francis Coben is the 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 character who sets all of this stuff in motion as this vicious Ted Bundy-like killer. Um, but the story is really about these other people who get caught up in his web and how their lives are changed by being attached to this very infamous story. So one of the things that the book touches on is the role that we have, all of us, the media, the people who to digest the media, and I'm certainly one of them as somebody who follows true crime and everything, who buys the books about the serial killer. You know, Reed writes one in the story. This is something I might buy. Um, are we sort of helping to perpetuate serial murder as these people, you know, seek as part of their motive fame? Um, and are we harming victims who unfortunately do get caught up, you know, the Ellery's or the Carol's who have to, you know, turn on the TV and see who's playing them this week? You know, for me, it's just an entertaining story. For them, they had to live it. So there's kind of a little bit of an uncomfortable look at the role that uh, media play in shaping the serial killer narrative. So you said this this novel idea the, the came to you about 20 years ago. Um, what was your writing process like? How did you finalize on this book? Uh, well, I, you know, I've been writing since I was eight and mostly mystery mystery-type novels, and people always told me, well, you should try and get published. You should try and get published. And uh, one of the things that always very intimidated me about the thought of trying to do it was that for mysteries especially, the publishers like you to come with your series, not your one novel. And so, you know, the idea of trying to sit down and think of not just one great book, but many great books, I was like, oh, too, too much, too much. Um, but then I hit on, on Reed and Ellery and I thought, well, these are characters who have enough going on that I think they could have arcs that, that last longer than one book and that they could be interesting to write about and hopefully read about for, for multiple stories. Uh, they have, you know, people coloring their lives. They have layers of, of complication that is enough material to last beyond one story. Um, so I think that's, that's why I picked them. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh yeah, sure. Um, so you work as a scientific editor and you do research on, uh, I, I guess working on books that, uh, or, or articles, uh, on research for new therapies for cancer, addiction, Alzheimer's. Tell us mm -hmm. about that work. Uh, so it's a lot of fun and, and very interesting. You know, the, Scientists are out there 
almost all science is done with the hope of improving human lives in some way. And, and usually this is in, involved with, you know, curing or preventing disease. And, uh, you know, that runs across the spectrum from something like, you know, attention deficit disorder to AIDS to cancer to Alzheimer's. And so there's, you know, thousands of scientists out there working in the lab and they, they write up their discoveries and they submit their manuscripts and, and maybe they need a little help, you know, telling the story and making it uh, as polished and as readable as possible. And so that's where I come in. Uh, and I have a, a PhD in neuroscience, so I was trained in science and I understand the process. So I can, I can speak both languages. I guess you'd say I, I understand science and I understand English, like writing. Um, and so I, I help the scientists tell their stories to the best of their ability. And it's really just, it's fascinating stuff. Does that work influence your fiction writing at all? Is there a focus on, for example, the scientific aspects of investigation, like gathering and processing evidence? Um, a little bit, but I mean, I, I see them more as sort of philosophically related. I see science and crime solving both as, as puzzles, really, where you start with your hypothesis, your theory of what happened or what you think is happening, and then you start gathering evidence to see if it confirms or, or denies your theory, and then you adjust it as you need be until you finally arrive at the answer. Uh, I, so I, I think they're sort of both iterating on, on a, on a theory until, until you arrive at the solution. And I look as, at sort of scientific, um, developments along the way as, as sort of suspects. I was reading a book called The Gene a couple of years ago, and, uh, the first hundred pages is all about how we even got to the concept of DNA, because you can imagine, you know, hundreds of years ago, people had no, no idea how, mm how it worked at all. They had no idea how elephants made more elephants and not beavers. And they're like, well, there must be some way this is happening, but, but what? So they started, you know, thinking about their suspects, like what, what could be the force that is at work here and who controls it? Is it, is it the father or is it the mother? How does it even work? And it wasn't until, you know, about a hundred years ago, a little less that they, uh, you know, could see DNA and they, they caught it in the act and they finally, you know, photographed it and said, okay, this is what we're looking at. And they got closer and closer to the truth over the years. And then they finally apprehended the, the suspect DNA. <laughs> but it was very similar to how you would approach solving a crime. And plotting mysteries can be a real challenge, especially when you know, you're, you're looking ahead to maybe laying the groundwork for the series, dropping little clues for things that may come up in future books. What were some of those challenges for you? How did you go about that? Uh, well, I like, I like plotting. I think it's interesting. I usually start knowing who did it and why. And maybe a couple of other uh, major twists along the way. I don't plot with a detailed outline because I discovered many years ago that if I have a detailed outline, I, I won't do the work and, and write the story because there's no discovery in it for me. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some element of, you know, you're writing along and then a character does something that you didn't think he was going to do at the beginning. Um, and then, you know, there he is doing the thing and you're like, Oh, this is interesting. I had no idea. You, you know, you had this secret motive that I didn't even imagine when I first started out with the story. 
so there's that aspect. And in terms of, um, you know, plotting, I think of it, you know, there's sort of three different lines of uh, knowledge. There's my knowledge, which is universal. There's the reader knowledge, and then there's the, te- the detective knowledge. And, you know, the reader should never be uh, too far or too... Uh, too far ahead or too far behind the detective, or you lose them. Uh, so if the reader is way far ahead of the detective, then they get bored and they start thinking the detective is an idiot. And if they're way too far behind, then they can maybe feel like you, you, the, that the author gave the detective knowledge that the reader wasn't privy to, and that's not fair. Uh, you know, that the, he had secret knowledge given to him that, that, was not available to the reader and that you cheated them out of being able to solve the whodunit. And so sometimes keeping all of those threads uh, appropriately woven together, it, it can be a challenge and you end up having to rewrite sections or something like that to make sure it all turns out okay. And you've also had experience uh, writing and producing for uh, TV uh, and kind of getting out the the the, uh, the 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 broader picture. You you wrote for Good Morning America in 2020. Um, what 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 kind of writing were you doing there? So at uh, ABC, I was part of the science and medical unit um, because journalists didn't go to school to study science. And so when a study comes out in something like the New England Journal of Medicine, they need somebody who does understand the science to read it and interpret it for them. And this includes things like, should we even put it on the air? Or is this something that is important for doctors to know, but your average viewer at home, it, you know, they don't need to know about it right now. It's, it's not something they should care about. So part of what I did was field about 600 pitches a day uh, and decide which the show should cover. And I wrote up a, a daily memo and, you know, to advise them, I think you should cover this one or that one. And I think you should stay away from this one because it's total crap. <laughs> um, and then I would also help them write the scripts when they needed, you know, to assess for accuracy uh, and things like that. And I did that for all the ABC shows and it was an utterly fascinating job. I, I can imagine demanding as well. Yes, it was. I mean, Good Morning America goes on the air at 7, so sometimes they would call at 4 in the morning. Oh, wow. And and say something like, you know, we just read this thing in the British tabloids about how blue M&Ms cure ADHD. What do you think? <laughs> and I would say, I think that's something to stay away from. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, you know, it was never ending. And any time there was um, a significant science or health story in the news, so, and even big stories that had a, a health angle. So I was working there when Katrina hit, for example, mm. and there were a lot of health issues that came out of, you know, living in New Orleans after the hurricane. Um, people who couldn't get their medicines, living in houses with mold, these kinds of things. And then we had people that were on the ground that had to be advised about, you know, do I need to be wearing a mask here and just all kinds of different stories. And so we worked really long hours. Um, and then, you know, bird flu would flare up. And the next thing you know, like the health and medical unit is on call constantly because there's a big health and news story and you just never knew you if you were driving somewhere and, a, and something big happened you might have to just turn around and go into work that is the life of the uh of the news journalist so are you focusing on your fiction writing now 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've done I've written five books in two years, I guess, at this point, uh, on top of a full time job and and parenting an eight year old. So mm. I'm quite tired. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. But yes, I I'm doing both at the moment. I have my day job, and then in the evening and weekend hours, I I write books. And you've written five books in two years that way. That's very impressive. Yeah, I'm pretty fast. I mean, my process is such if I'm doing my job right, by the time I sit down at the computer, it's literally just downloading the scenes from my head. And I have a a three-hour daily commute, an hour and a half into Boston and an hour and a half home. And so that's just a lot of time in the car or on the train to sit and think. And, and you know, I can think about the story and then uh, come home and actually write it. And can you give us any hints, avoiding spoilers, of course, for the next couple of books in the series? Sure. So book two is tentatively called No Mercy, and it uh, is slated to come out in January 2019. And in that one, after the events of the vanishing season, Ellery is sentenced to group therapy uh, for victims of violent crime to kind of deal with what happened to her before she's allowed back on the force. And um, she doesn't think much of this idea. So instead of working on her own problems, she immediately starts investigating some of the unsolved crimes that led her fellow uh, group survivors to be in the group. Some of their crimes are, are still open or unsolved uh, and uh, or have issues. So she thinks one of the women may have convicted the wrong man of murder. Mm. Um, and uh, another one, there's a rapist on the loose. And she really wants Ellery to help find the guy because she thinks that the cops have given up. Uh, so Ellery starts digging around in everybody's past but her own, basically. And this leads her to reconnect with uh, Reed, um, in part because uh, the woman who... Uh, may have accused the wrong man of murder. That was Reed's boss's case many years ago. And Reed is angling for a promotion from this very boss. So digging around in in his case is not necessarily going to help Reed get promoted. But if an injustice has indeed been committed, then you know he feels obligated to help uh, right that wrong. And of course, he's intrigued to see Ellery again and bump the dog. And then the third one... Um, is tentatively called the Neon Boneyard, and that is Reed and Ellery go to Las Vegas to solve uh, his mother's murder. Well, it sounds extremely exciting. We're going to keep an eye out for those, and thank you so much for giving us a sense of what happens. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. We've been talking with Joanna Schaffhausen, and you can find her book, The Vanishing Season, in stores right now. Joanna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers talks about Global Kids Connect, so stay tuned. I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of the memoir Logical Family, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is here to tell us all about the third annual Global Kids Connect conference. Hi, John. Hi. Very nice to have you here. So uh, give us a rundown of what Global Kids Connect is and 
PW's involvement. Yeah, so this is a, a conference that we have been running for three years now uh, in partnership with the uh, Bologna Children's Book Fair. And it, we hold it here in uh, in New York in the building where PW is based. And it's, a, it's open to anyone really in the business who wants to get a little bit more insight into uh, different aspects of the children's book uh, market. And so for the last couple of years, it's been a... Um, a day-long conference, and this year we sort of made a little bit more focused, a half-day conference. Um, I was not terribly involved in the uh, organization of the event, but um, PW editors as well as a, um, a advisory board had been working for months and months about you know getting these panels uh, put together, who's going to appear on them, and what are the, bit, the parts of the children's book business that... Um, we should be looking at right now. So uh, is the conference for uh, uh, editors or, or uh, writers and illustrators, or is it for those in the, in the field uh, as professionals, editors, publishers? Um, I would say based, uh, you know, we, we certainly have had some kind of uh, presence from like self pub startup, um, uh, either small publishers or, you know, independent authors, things like that in the past years. But in general, I would say, most of the attendees are people who are already kind of established in the business, um, you know, either working editorially or on the right side or other aspects of, of publishing. Yeah. So give us some highlights of the conference. Uh, tell us a little bit about the panels. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the very first one was kind of a data-driven uh, look at, at the, um, the industry, and that was uh, delivered by Kristen McLean, who's with um, uh, NPD BookScan. Mm -hmm. uh, they provide, of course, the BookScan numbers that... We all look at so closely to see uh, what's you know what is selling uh, right. in the business, and so she had a sort of she was looking at um, kind of at macro trends. Sometimes she'll and um, look kind of a big picture look. And one of the biggest I guess takeaways is that you know just just how resilient um, children's books has been as a business. And she sort of looked back and you know we were she was saying that you know taking us back to the, the sort of economic. Uh, I don't say collapse, but you know the real struggles of the economy back in '09 thereabouts. Children's books remained resilient um, throughout that period, and whereas maybe historically it was this sort of like a, a side part of a business for a lot of publishers who also publish adult books, it really has become in many ways a real strong central part of the business that can be kind of relied on to be steady when the adult market um, sometimes maybe isn't quite as resilient and maybe has more dips. That's interesting. And how far back was she looking at the data? Um, I know that in terms of some of the things she was looking at, um, it went back at least five or six years. Uh, she, she had basically said that um, that the children's sector, and I think that includes young adult, has grown faster than the overall print market as a whole for at least the past five years. I believe um, that. And within that, you know, a lot of interesting stuff going on, um, and some of which I've noticed even um, on, on my own end as a reviews editor, but... Um, uh, Board books, uh, which is, you know, the books for the very, very young, you know, from birth up to age three or thereabouts, right. um, have been kind of booming. Um, and things like boxed sets and, uh, which, you know, collect maybe five, a series all in one thing, just as those are little, sort of like smaller trends. But they, she thought and they both kind of point, in, uh, to just how much, uh, parents are still really focused on making sure that their children are involved with physical print books from a young age and getting right. books in the hands of their kids um, right from the start. Right. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. And there's the educational market to consider too. 
Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, um, and certainly the, the resiliency of print, um, especially in the children's book market, um, was a theme that came up really throughout the day and it was discussed in the different, different ways in the different panels. Um, but, um, ebooks in the children's book market really never got much of a foothold and it's still a presence in there. Um, but in general, especially with younger readers, print has remained, um, remarkably resilient. Um, and something else as she t- talked about, and I think also again came up uh, throughout the day was strength and, and kind of ongoing boom of, of comics and graphic novels and, mm. and the children's book space. Um, we've seen in recent years that these books are, you know, getting more and more awards and, and that sort of attention. But even beyond that, just from a sales perspective, um, a lot of people t- throughout the day were talking about how this really, and I think she brought this up herself, but it really speaks to like a new sort of new generation of very visual readers who, um, for whom visual storytelling is just really woven into, you know, how they, you know, want to, to read. And I don't know if that's tied to the fact that these are children are also digital natives, but right. even so it, it, the uh, graphic novels, comics and manga are just an incredibly kind of strong part of the children's book landscape right now. Well, sounds great. So, um, and that was one of the panels and what about another one? Yeah. So next up after that was a panel, uh, moderated by Ginger Clark of Curtis Brown. She's an agent over there. Yeah. And she basically had, uh, she had two, uh, literary scouts on the panel and a, uh, someone who is a, um, who works at rights people, which is a rights agency. So this was actually a, an encore of a panel that we've had for at least one, if not two years at the conference. Um, partially because these are just very, um, well, well, um, well-educated, very in-the-know um, women who are connected to both the, the American marketplace, but also how these books translate into other markets. But also because as people who are involved on the right side of the business, they are seeing stuff, particularly as scouts, so early in the process. You know, mm. they, uh, at, at one point, the, you know, the scouts are described sort of as cool hunters and the spies of the business because they really are trying to find out stuff as early as possible. You know, what is coming out? What really has the chance to break out? So that they can, you know, make sure that their clients who are foreign publishers know about them as early as possible and can maybe secure those rights. And how well do kids' books uh, translate to foreign markets, to international markets, uh, either from you know, American books to uh, others or um, say others to ours to American markets? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think I would say that certainly the... Um the export of um, of U.S. titles to other markets is certainly a, a stronger flow than the reverse. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the children's book side, there's a, a bit more that comes back in. Uh, you know, I, I'm certainly very familiar with seeing picture books that are coming in from Europe and and parts of Asia all the time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's it's really a fraction of what's being published in in the U.S. And I know that the overall figure that is always quoted is about three percent or right. something. Right. I, yeah. I, I would. I don't have numbers about the children's. Um, industry. I, I do suspect because of picture books and how much easier they are to translate um, that the numbers are a little bit better. Sure. But um, but yeah. So but otherwise, it's still very much an important part of the business. And so um, this was really looking at like the current state of you know what markets are changing, how what sort of things are happening in the children's book um, market across the globe from a rights standpoint. Right. Um, one thing that did come up uh, as part of that was uh, a bit of a discussion on audiobooks and audio rights, um, uh, which seemed to be kind of getting an increased amount of attention and, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think maybe perhaps connected to the popularity of podcasts and things like that. Mm -hmm. And especially when it comes to YA audiobooks, the, the suspicion, the suspicion is quite strong that it's, it's a lot of adults reading audiobooks, listening to audiobooks, um, the way that they would listen to other audio products like podcasts. Right. That makes sense. But also, is there a market for 
audio versions of books for younger readers? Because I would have expected that in YA, but middle grade or below too? It seem, uh, I think it seems like there's less of that. Mm. Um, this came up later. I, I don't think it really matters. I'm not getting ahead of ourselves or anything. But at one point, um, the conversation talked, um, one of the later panels of the day was uh, talking a bit about um, digital assistants like Alexa and Siri and things like that. Mm. And one of the publishers oh, um, right. mentioned that her daughter had asked Alexa to read her a story and Alexa did that. Oh, wow. So, you know, and they were saying, well, when mom and dad aren't available, will, will these digital assistants at some point be uh, doing a bit of the storytelling? The robot babysitter. Ooh, yes. so let me it, try that uh, with Google Home tonight, my daughter. <laughs> Just uh, make sure you pick a story that, you're, uh, <laughs> that I'm okay with. <laughs> yes. You may have to read it a million times, right. but you may still have to listen to right, it. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, and at the end of this event, uh, there was this great um, gathering afterwards with past hors d'oeuvres, cocktails. Um, it seemed like a, I was th I was at it, uh, and it seemed like a really fun, friendly uh, group of people. Yeah, it, it, it's a great thing. So this is um, another aspect of, the, of this conference that we've been doing. We, we've been holding it in conjunction with the release of a special uh, children's book issue that we've been doing for several years now, uh, the, the Children's Star Review Annual. Mm -hmm. And what that is is that collects... Um, basically, all of the children's and young adult reviews that PW has given starred reviews to in the past year in one issue, um, organized kind of thematically and by age range and things like that, so that um, it's it's a resource for whoever, you know, whether you're somebody in the trade or even a consumer who wants to sort of look at, like, what are the books that we right. liked the best, it's there for you. So we do this big launch party for the for the magazine that, that dovetails with the end of the conference, and we do invite, we reach out to publishers and authors who who did have starred reviews from us in the past year that they're welcome to attend. And obviously a lot are not local and can't make it, but we still had plenty who did. And it, it, it's fun for me to get to see some of the folks uh, in person whose books we sure. loved so much during the past year. Well, that sounds like a lovely time. And I'm sure plans are already afoot for doing it again next year. Yeah, I believe, uh, actually, I think the event, you know, as I mentioned, it was a half day this year and I think it's going to continue to evolve uh, to the best of my knowledge. So I think it's actually going to do some spinoffs into some uh, breakfast panels that oh, are sort wow. of more targeted throughout the year where they can look at one really targeted aspect of the children's book business over you know a period of time with panelists and things like that who are really equipped to talk about it so i think you know we're going to continue to look and see how we can keep bringing events to the children's book business excellent well john thank you so much thanks for coming on the show again and talking to us absolutely always happy to always very nice to have you here and now a final word from our sponsors Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another great author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 